It's another blessed occasion, isn't it, that we have been granted on this Sunday afternoon to assemble and to gather even as we are. As often as the psalmist declared statements such as Psalm 26, verse 8, in which there were reminded, Lord, I've loved the habitation of thine house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. And so tonight, you and I have enjoyed the blessing, the privilege that's ours to offer our worship unto God, and for at least a portion of that hour, let's turn our attention to this month's installment of Questions and Answers. You'll see on the slide, this is, we try to do this once a month, and so already we've arrived at the installment for the month of March. As always, these are the questions that you have submitted, so they aren't my particular choices or ideas, but I do think it's wise to notice that quite often we do have questions. There are issues that we would wish that might well be discussed in light of the Word of God, and it'll be our chore, our delight tonight to attempt to do that very thing. As always, if you do have particular questions, feel free to use that box right there outside the auditorium and just put those in there. You don't have to sign your name to them, and I'll try to use them in the months coming up wherein we have our next installment of the questions and answers. The whole reason that these kinds of lessons are certainly vital and useful is that we have a conviction, a very strong one, that this is the Word of God, that it's not the Word of men. First Thessalonians 2.13 reminds us that, in fact, that's the way the Thessalonians received it, is the Word of God. And due to that, we're going to turn our attention to these questions tonight. And so the first question is this one. Allow me to read it in the wording that it was shared with me so that I make sure to get things at least on target with what the person intended to say, hopefully. What is meant by Matthew 17, verses 11 and 12, about Elijah's coming? Now, that's the text I invited to be read just a moment ago, Matthew 17, verses 11 and 12, involving the coming of Elijah. On the slide, let's step through some attributes that might well be shared, and then we'll give some careful thought to the answer. Elijah, of course, is a well-known Old Testament prophet. We first encounter him in, the, in 1 Kings 17, and in the chapters that follow that, in fact, up through 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah takes center stage in many ways among those chapters of the Bible. A prophet he was who was bold, courageous, and in fact, in light of the message he preached, there were those who didn't care very much at all for it. You may remember Jezebel in particular. She threatened his life rather immediately and said, By this time tomorrow, you in fact will be dead. I simply use those things <clears throat> to state it like this. He was known for a spirit of boldness, a spirit of directness, and a spirit of conviction in many ways relative to what God in fact had said. On the slide, I've invited you to notice that Elijah lived and walked this planet about 850 B.C. That obviously is about 850 years prior to the coming of Jesus to the planet, at least in the flesh. And all of that leads us to notice the wording of Malachi 4, verse number 5. As you and I close the Old Testament in the very last chapter of it, in fact, you encounter the following statement, which probably prompted a part of what's going to be involved in our question tonight. So remember that Malachi himself made this statement. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So please remember that Elijah actually lived about 850 B.C. Malachi penned this 
about 400 years later. So Elijah was long since dead. And yet, you may notice that Malachi used a future tense verb and said, I will send you yet one known as Elijah. What was going on here? Elijah was long dead. What was Malachi referring to? The issue only becomes more intense as we turn to the New Testament. And so on that slide before you, I've invited you to recall with me the scene of the Lord's transfiguration. In Matthew chapter 17, as the opening verse of that chapter begins, that discussion, you and I recall that Jesus went up to the mount, and thereon He was transfigured before them. And isn't it interesting that there appeared both Moses and Elijah. And the Lord conversed with them. But that isn't all. Could I call to your attention, not only did Elijah appear in that conversation, but at the aftermath of it, Peter made the remark, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let us build three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, isn't it interesting that here Elijah is under discussion again? But this point is to be noted. It was a magnificent statement wherein the God of heaven declared this, speaking of Jesus, is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. It was no longer the time to hear Elijah. It was no longer appropriate to hear Moses in the sense that he was the lawgiver beneath which the law was that we, you and I would be living today. It is now time, the God of heaven declared, to hear Jesus the Christ. In the immediate aftermath of that, that observation prompted the following question. Allow me to then read Matthew 17, verse number 10. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? There were scribes, of course, Jew Jewish in character, and they were still proclaiming apparently what Malachi had affirmed, that, Je that rather Elijah is yet coming. It is in that regard that Jesus immediately responded like this. Verse number 11, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall come first, and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias has come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. The comment the Lord made was this, It's a true fact that Elijah must come first. Elias, as the Greek would, would tend to it, in fact, record that. But in the occurrence of that, the Lord quickly highlighted that Elijah has come. He has been here. He is here. In light of that statement, you and I now might be prepared to ask, so to whom was the Lord referring when He said in verse number 12 that Elias is come already? He has come. If you would turn back just a few chapters, we have that answer. Back to Matthew 11, verse number 14. In the discussion as it's presented for us in that place, Jesus in speaking said this, And if you will receive it, this is Elias which was for to come. If you and I can ascertain from that description and context, who was the Elijah that Jesus referred to then? I believe we'll have it. Let's just go back up about three verses. Beginning in verse number 11, Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there hath not arisen a greater than John the Baptist, 
Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. As the Lord made reference using the pronoun this, he referred to John the Baptist, and he highlighted that this is the Elijah. This is the one to whom Malachi the prophet was referring. This is the one that was for to come. If you wish, we can look at Luke chapter 1 and look at yet another description of that idea. In Luke chapter 1, verse number 17, And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Again, all we need to do is look a few verses earlier and find this description had to do with the parents of John the Baptist and the fact that they were going to give birth to the one who was in fact in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And as you and I close that slide, isn't it interesting to notice some connections? In the same way that the literal Elijah often had to confront interesting adversaries. And he nonetheless was a person rather known for his plainness. After all, he ate locusts and wild honey. And he wasn't dressed in the finery of the day. But what he proclaimed was to the point and direct, and he didn't beat around the bush. In many ways, you and I remember, of course, that that had been characteristic of somewhat like the prophet Elijah. It was he who confronted Ahab directly to the face and said, You have troubled Israel. That took courage, didn't it, to stand before the king and say that. And it was him who directly confronted Jezebel and had many of the same words to say. And so the answer to her question, when Jesus referred to the one coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, it was John the Baptist. And isn't it interesting that by the time we read in Matthew 17, John had already been beheaded. He had lost his life for his courage to tell a king that the woman you're married to, it's not lawful for you to have her. And ultimately, that cost him his life. What about our second question of the night? The second question reads as follows. Where is unleavened bread mentioned as the bread part of the Lord's Supper? Again, where is unleavened bread mentioned as the bread part of the Lord's Supper. In many ways, this connects interestingly with some of the observations we made as a part of our lesson this morning. But isn't it fascinating to recollect in Exodus chapter 12 that as the children of Israel were making ready to leave Egypt, that was of course the night in which the firstborn were to be slain, that there was this particular meal that they were to celebrate, to enjoy in the haste of that moment. And it was something that involved in the description of Exodus 12, verses 6 and following. There was to be certain things such as <clears throat> unleavened bread. At that point, you and I might begin to note the following. On that night at least, you and I learned something about the bread, the, the food items, if you will, that they were to utilize as parts of that meal. You may notice on the slide, though, that that was only the first mention of many more to come. Because you see, immediately following the Passover, in an annual way, they were to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Note, please, the name. For a period of a week, 
from the 15th until the 21st day of the first month, there was to be no leaven at all in the dwellings of the Israelite people. In fact, in some of the descriptions, it seems apparent that they were to look with care and discover and find any leaven there and make sure that it was rid from the house so that they could celebrate and keep that feast of unleavened bread as, in fact, it had been intended. However, you and I might begin to wonder, so that was that initial institution of that Passover. Were the children of Israel faithful to keep it that way in the years that followed? I've invited you to notice on the slide, we could turn to Joshua 5, verse number 11, and find in that place, which now, of course, was some number of years after the events of that initial Passover. And yet we are still reminded that they used unleavened bread on that occasion in the celebration of that particular event. But what about another one? In Second Chronicles 35, 17, this, of course, now was centuries later, and we still find a reference to the employment and the utility of unleavened bread as a part of those particular elements in, in, that, in that feast. I use all of that as a background to say this. As we then step into the New Testament, you and I well recall that the time came in the Lord's life when He was soon to be crucified, of course, but just before He did, He celebrated the Passover with His disciples. And the New Testament is rather clear in describing for us some of the particulars of it. In Mark 14, verse 22, for example, as well as Luke 22, verse 1, we find two references to that feast which was celebrated on that Wednesday night of that week in which our Lord was crucified. It was the Passover. And you might recall that there had been a question asked of Jesus. Two of the disciples said, Lord, where wilt thou that we go and prepare for the Passover? And you, of course, remember that He gave them some rather detailed instructions of where they'd find a large upper room sufficient for that celebration. To say all of that, though, is to say this. When the Lord assembled with them that night, under the consideration of it being the Passover, what kind of bread would have been a part of that? From the days of Exodus 12, verses 6 and onward, we appreciate it would have been the unleavened character of that bread. In fact, in Deuteronomy 16, verses 1 to 4, we find somewhat of an explanation at that point at least, of why the unleavened bread occupied that role. It had to do with the haste of that night. There wasn't time for the bread to rise. wasn't time for the leavening agent to do its thing. And therefore, God said it is the bread of affliction in Deuteronomy 16.4. But I might say that only lead brings us to the bottom of the slide. What about a rather larger theological connection? a connection that might well have a great deal of bearing on your life and mine. Throughout the Word of God, isn't it interesting some of the things that leaven is used to represent? And it isn't difficult to find those representations. In fact, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. That verse occurs twice in the New Testament. Once in Galatians 5, 9, as you can see on the slide, and once in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6, 7, and 8. Now, what was the context there? It wasn't a good thing. It was the influence of what's evil. It was the permeation, if you please, of what starts out with a poor influence. If sin isn't checked, it will soon have very many fellows to accompany it. A little leaven 
will leaven the whole lump. And so Paul encouraged the Corinthian congregation, in fact, urged them, you've got to disfellowship or withdraw fellowship from that man who's living in adultery, who's living in open fornication. Not only that, in that Galatians context, again, if you bite and devour one another, you'll be consumed of one another. Written directly to the church. So as a congregation, if you allow sin to rear its ugly head and allow it to go unchecked, it will soon lead to a lot more problems. You may then notice that you and I are encouraged as Christians to be those that quite frankly are unleavened in that sense. We don't associate with sin. We don't tolerate it. We don't, in fact, invite it into our lives. And we certainly are those who in love would wish to help others see what errors that also might well present. Isn't it interesting in Matthew 16, verses 6 and 12, Jesus, in fact, directly helped us appreciate and understand that when He said, remember, they were a bit of a position to be misunderstanding. When He said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, some thought he meant the bread that those Pharisees make. And he said, no, that's not what I mean. I mean the doctrine. And so he used leaven, the word thereof, consistent with the idea of instruction or teaching. You and I today then realize that that unleavened bread was a part of that meal, but that at least in the religious sense, it had to do with a degree of being uninfluenced by and those who are not partakers of Issues connected to sinfulness. These two opening questions of the night have certainly prompted us to ponder more questions. Let's look at number three. This question is an interesting, interesting one just as the others have been. Allow me to read it. Was the human family created by incest in the beginning? An interesting question to be sure. Let me say I'll certainly try to be as delicate as I am able to in light of a question such as this one. Because after all, we do wish to not only consider it, but also to be mindful of ears that might be in the audience. Was the human family created under the banner of what would be called incest? First of all, allow me to begin with a definition. Incest, by definition, is this. It is defined as relations of a sexual character between persons so closely related in a physical way that they are forbidden by law to marry. May I again highlight the thought. This is that particular word to describe, that state of affairs, when two individuals are so close in their family relation that the law would forbid them to marry each other. Now, at this point, we ask this question, for there's no question, no doubt, some of the next observations on that slide. As you revisit the opening chapters in Genesis especially, you find in many instances that men and women fairly close in physical relation married each other. For example, where did Cain get his wife? We're told in Genesis 4.17 that Cain married there is really but one possibility. You and I know Adam and Eve had several lots of children, and Cain must have married his sister. That's the only source for a female on earth at that time. 
he married his sister, that would be outlawed today under the banner of incest. You and I remember that Abraham married his half-sister. In fact, we read about that also so readily in the book of God. Both of those would not be permitted today under the character again of the law that would forbid such. I have a better question. When did the law come into place that would then identify the character of incest? It clearly was not in place in the opening chapters of Genesis. The issue biologically and from the study of genetics was such that there was yet at that time no problem with the intermarriage and the feature of relations among those that were close in kin. But by the time we arrive at Leviticus 18, that had changed. So on the slide, I would invite you to notice in that chapter, we have very clear specification from God, may I again emphasize, now there were certain relations which were absolutely forbidden. You were not able to marry these, and it included some of the very ones that you would appreciate. Brothers or sisters, aunts or uncles, first cousins, if you please, all of those were no longer possible as marriage partners. And you and I can understand in God's infinite wisdom, as those matters were presented, we now appreciate there's when that law came into play. So, did the human family begin in incest? Absolutely not. That law had not come into place at that time. As you give thought to some of the details concerning features related to those matters occurring back in the far distant beginning, we'd readily agree that some things are rather different and distinct, but it would not be a correct statement to say that the human family came about under the matter of incest, that law forbidding such. God had not put that in place at that time. What about question number four this evening? Again, if I may read it. Question number four, should we practice fasting today? A rather quickly worded question, should we practice fasting today? This question is one that has many particular aspects or features that might well be developed. I don't know that I took it in the direction that the person intended who asked it, but I hope uh, among the things that I share, maybe one or more of them might directly connect to the provision of that answer. So on the slide that's before us, could I point out, fasting is actually mentioned many times in the Bible. Some 74 times we find a direct reference, and shouldn't we each be a bit intrigued to notice that 33 of them are in the New Testament. 33 of them, just a little less than half actually found in the pages of the 27 books of the New Testament. But beyond that, you might well notice, perhaps again, a definition is in order. Fasting identifies that state of affairs of abstaining as a religious exercise from food and drink. So please take note, fasting is not merely abstaining from food just because you want to lose some weight or just because maybe it's inconvenient to eat. Well, those things might be considerations, but they aren't fasting. Fasting is the particular connection to, as a religious observance, as a religious exercise, I am withholding myself from food and or drink. On that slide, you may then notice that there's a spiritual purpose that is described in the Word of God as relating then to this matter in fasting. 
it would seem that Luke 2.37 directly makes reference to that idea. But even beyond all of that, isn't it interesting then that it is referenced so many times in the Old Testament to be sure, but in the New Testament as well. For example, I've called your attention that text in Mark 2 verse 18. And this one is in many ways a, a rather interesting passage because in it we read the following. There's the observation made that the disciples of John fasted, but the disciples of Jesus at that time at least were something to be noted differently in a comparative way they didn't fast either as much or as often or to the same degree and they asked the Lord somewhat about that and you might recall the Lord's response I've asked you to notice it on the slide he said his disciples would fast after the bridegroom was taken away after the bridegroom was taken away that of course refers to himself it appeared to be then the Lord made this connection, this statement, that right now while the bridegroom, namely himself, was here, it's not the appropriate time nor place for fasting. But that when the bridegroom is taken away then, there would be more opportunity in the sense of an expectation. I would say at the bottom that in Matthew 6, verses 16 and 17, on another occasion when Jesus was describing fasting, it's a bit interesting the word he chose. He said, when my disciples fast. He didn't say if. He seemingly suggested or at least implied that it would be expected that they would. It was more a nature of when and not if. The next slide will be one that takes us a bit further in that journey. Isn't it true that some Bible characters in some instances fasted for rather notable amounts of time? Jesus, of course, fasted for some 40 days. You might recall Elijah had fasted again for that same length in time. As you and I come to Acts chapter 13, we find a congregation of the Lord's people, the church at Antioch. They engaged in a period of fasting prior to commissioning Paul and Barnabas in light of the first missionary journey. But there, a congregation of the Lord's people found itself in a time of fasting. As I invite you to consider some of those occurrences, look at the next one if you would. Paul reminded us that he himself was often found in fastings, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. I at this point will pause long enough to say, in light of these verses, it would at least appear that it should be something that we as Christians ought to consider in light of drawing near unto the Lord as a religious exercise to separate ourselves from those matters of a physical influence and provide for us a mental state, perhaps of closer union, closer unity with the will of God. That appears to be the purpose that's found in at least the descriptions we encounter in the pages of the Bible. But there is more to be said than that. At the bottom of that slide, we read in Zechariah 8.19 that fasting was a rather notable part of the lives of those Israelite people, so much so that God in some ways regulated it. Now, that was in the days of Zechariah. It, doesn't allow, it does allow us to ask, so what were the purposes that prompted them to fast so you and I might at least understand it better? Note some of these which I've chosen to list next. First, in 2 Samuel 1, 
There was fasting that occurred in a rather extensive time of grief, sadness, tragedy, catastrophe. These overwhelming moments were such that the people dealt with them, at least in part, by fasting. In Esther 4, verse number 3, you and I might recall that edict that the king had given by virtue of being prompted by Haman. And it was a momentous time. All the Jews were going to be slain if that plan had been followed. And in that time, you might recall, there was an insistence of fasting. Happened to deal with that particular edict and the circumstances that went with it. Not only that. In a time of penitence we find several passages that connect it to fasting. For example, in 1 Samuel 7, verse 6, Nehemiah 9, beginning in verse 1, as well as Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. In all of those instances, again, there was a time wherein someone or a group of people found themselves rather distant from God. And under the banner of their returning to God, there was an insistence on fasting. It was to go along with repentance. It was a part of at least demonstrating or showing their fidelity in returning unto God. The next one on that slide is this one. We find in a few other passages that fasting seemingly was connected to a mindset of humility. Ezra 8 verse 21, Psalm 35 13, as well as Psalm 69 10. In other words, if one submitted oneself to fasting, and it not only showed one's humbleness before God, but that one was willing to even separate from that which satisfies the flesh by withdrawing from it, by restraining oneself from it, so much so that one could at least demonstrate that degree of humility. Look at the next one, please. We find other occasions when fasting was done as a part of securing the help and blessing of God. I would mention these possibilities. Deuteronomy 9, verse 9, as well as 2 Chronicles 20, beginning in verse number, 31, verse number 3. All of that again shows us that in the petitioning of God's blessings to prepare for that was at least a statement that included fasting. All of that might well lead us to a more direct answer to our question. So we've listed a lot of verses that had something to say about fasting. In the New Testament, fasting we find in times of distress, in times of even temptation. Let me list for you these possibilities. In Matthew 4, verses 1 and following, remember the Lord, has, as He, in fact, had made preparation for that time of temptation, He had fasted. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, one more time, the Corinthian church was told something along that line. In Acts 14, 23, in the midst of that first missionary journey, there was something to be said about fasting and connected to affliction that was a part of fidelity to God. I'll pause at this point to say, you and I might then find a situation in which something sufficiently troubling in life, something that's distressing, and you may find, among other things, that you would wish to beseech the help and blessing of God in the midst of this distress and this duress. And you may wish then for a period of fasting to be a part of that event. No one would be able to challenge you that there's anything improper about that. 
But I would have to say, it does seem in the New Testament that is a personal choice. Our elders wouldn't require it of you. No body of believers could themselves insist it upon you. It has to be a personal selection, a personal choice, a personal decision under deliberation in light of that choice. At the bottom of that slide, some other possibilities. You'd also find some references to fasting, sometimes in light of other things. Let me rephrase some of it this way. Times of great decision. It could well be there's a momentous event occurring in your life. And it's perhaps easy to appreciate that what decision is made way may well have impact for the rest of my life. And maybe even my family much longer than that. It wouldn't be at all inappropriate to spend some very directed time in fasting and prayer. And those two are often linked in the pages of the New Testament we often find them connected in exactly that way. In fact, on this next slide, that linkage is so strong that I chose to list a few of the verses for you. In Daniel 9 verse 3, Daniel was overwhelmed with a recognition of the fact of where God's people were and what was about to happen. He knew, you see, that the amount of time that God had specified for the Babylonian captivity was about up. And so he prayed with earnestness unto God in light of God's blessings for what was now going to be the release from that captivity. In Mark 9, verse 29, Acts 13, 3, and Acts 14, 23, we have prayer and fasting linked in each one of those instances. I would offer this thought. For anyone that does choose to fast in that way, please take note that it is not a public spectacle. In fact, Jesus, I directly taught in Matthew 6, if you do fast and those moments when you're involved in it, don't disfigure your face. Don't parade it in a public way just so you can gain the notoriety of friends and neighbors and so that they can commend you for being so committed unto this attribute of service to God. That isn't the purpose. In fact, Jesus said, don't do that. You proceed in your normal way of life so that your directness and privacy and service to God is between you and Him. Let that be the guide when you and I choose to, to make fasting a part of our life. The next statement on that slide is this one. I find it intriguing in Isaiah 58. The opening part of that chapter is a lengthy discourse about that beautiful statement in which fasting is shown as it links to penitence. To let that be a part of the overflowing element of your heart in thankfulness for what God has done in forgiveness of you and in light of the beautiful connection to God that you then experience. It is true that, at the very least, in light of many of the passages we have already seen, it's fairly easy to see that fasting was never a substitute for obedience. In other words, one couldn't just then proclaim a personal fast in light of my individual failures and think that'll cover over them. Rather, fasting was a part of penitence. It was an expression of it and often a, a beautiful representation to be seen in it. That fourth question closes our set of questions for this evening. 
And in that sense, we've looked at those four of them, and this particular slide is nothing but a very brief conclusion. We've looked one by one as we connected them. First, who did the Lord refer to when He referred to Elijah as the one that was coming? Of course, that was John the Baptist. Our second question asks us about the unleavened bread of which we take so joyously in the Lord's Supper. That takes us back to Exodus 12 and, in fact, continued on from there. In the third place, that accusation about the human family beginning in incest, and that's not true. And finally, about the Bible's consideration of fasting. As we've looked at each of them, may I say that it's prepared us in some way for some of the next questions, and we will perhaps with intrigue look at them as we come to April's installment of Bible Questions and Answers. Let's offer the Lord's invitation at this time. It may well be that as we've thought about the Word of the Lord, we've been reminded that there's a power far higher than any of us and that He controls the key for all eternity. Jesus Himself declared in Revelation 1.18, I have the keys of Hades. He has them. You and I surely would want to be in His good graces and those that have been obedient servants to His so that on that great and faithful day, that all shall be well on that day of judgment for you and me. It'll be a day wherein we can hear the wording of Matthew 25, verse 21, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. If your life currently is not such that you are in position to hear that, why not make a response? This group of people would be delighted to celebrate with you, rejoice with you, and encourage you in those ways that your circumstances would in fact demand. As a wayward child of God, don't you wish to make repentance of those sins in your life, make confession of them, and invite, beseech the Lord's forgiveness? If you have never become a Christian, never known the blessedness of walking the way of faithfulness, tonight would be the night to begin. This 26th day of March in the year 2023 could be your spiritual birthday, and yea, your name could be written in the book of life tonight. Tonight. And that book will be the one opened in Revelation chapter 20, and everyone whose name is not in it will be cast into a lake burning with fire and brimstone. If tonight you'd like to have the Lord write your name there, we'd be honored to assist and help. Won't you believe in Him as a Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized? And we'd be honored to help. Brother Eddie has chosen this song of encouragement. If you would wish at this time to come, we would urge you to do that. Well, together we stand while we sing.